I'm Colin Ellis, and for 30 years I was a permanent employee of other people's cultures. What I wanted to know more than anything else during that time was how to create a great culture myself. So I wrote a book called Culture Fix, which is the world's first how-to guide for building great workplace culture. And in this, the Culture Makers podcast, I get industry leaders from around the world to expand on the ideas I wrote about in the book and to get them to share actionable things that you can do to create a great place to work yourself. And remember, listening is good, but action is better. Welcome to another Culture Makers podcast. Uh, today I'm delighted to be joined by John Salomon. John has over 25 years of culture building experience and is one of the US government's top people capital leaders. He's had a fantastic career serving in a variety of capacities in the executive and legislative branches of the US federal government. And in 2014, he was selected as a fellow of the National Academy of Public Administration. A budding author and experienced news radio guest, which is definitely going to stand him in good stead for this interview. John is currently the Chief Human Resources Officer at U.S. House of Representatives Office of the Chief Administration Officer based in Washington, D.C., and he joins me now. How are you, John? Colin, I am great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you. Uh, I'm so delighted to have you on the show. We we did a bit of work together last year. And I don't know, when you when you meet like-minded people, I felt like we, we really hit it off, which sounds like a bit of a bromance, uh, but that's okay, right? <laughs> so I'm keen to, to find out where it all started for you, John, before we get to what you're doing right now. And you've had a very exciting day that we'll get to at the end of the podcast. Where did it all start for you? Kind of where was home? What was that first job? What was that first leap into employment? Great, great question. Uh, so, wow, we're going to go way back. Um, home for me is upstate New York. Uh, I grew up in Rochester, New York. My first paying job was in high school, and I worked in the kitchen at a nursing home and absolutely loved it. The hours were great. It was 4.30 to 7.30 at night. I worked the dinner shift uh, and really enjoyed being able to interact with the patients that lived in, in the nursing home and had a great, great experience, a lot of fun. Definitely a lot of fun. And so, I mean, uh, I had a friend who once uh, worked at a nursing home and he said there was a great sense of togetherness. There was a great sense of belonging and um, putting yourself in service. So uh, obviously as a, as a, you know, kind of a, almost a lifelong public administrator, you, you, you really got into that putting yourself into service into others really early on, right? Right at the beginning. And, and you know, I, it didn't really hit me until you just asked me that question. Like, and we're going, like I said, way back, like 1985, 86. So I don't even want to. I don't even think I could do the math on that, but um, it, it really, if you think about it, it, really just jumped right into service and, and service for others and, and literally, you know, serving dinner and, and doing everything in between. And, and, you know, I kind of take that mantra in my current role and every role that I've had that there's no job that's too small and literally like having to clean up dinner trays, you know, do the dishes, but also serve the food. And I, I think from, from my standpoint, I, I try to impress upon team members that I'm working with, you know, no job is, is too small. And you talk about, you know, the current, you know, current job as the chief of HR here at the House of Representatives for the CA or the House. There are things that I do that you know, my team also does. And, and some of the day-to-day, even administrative, you know, we're doing focus groups right now and kind of tracking those focus groups. And I'm doing some of the administrative work associated with that. No job is ever too small, regardless of whether you're in a leadership program or just getting started in your career. Every experience builds on itself. 
Yeah, that's really good learning. My, my, my son, he's 15. He's got a careers week this week. So they're at that point where they're starting to think about careers and had a brief chat with him. And, you know, it's only afterwards I reflected it was much like the chat my dad had with me when I was probably that age. In the sense that, you know, kind of in terms of a career, in terms of work, you know, find, find something that, you know, where you can have an element of enjoyment working with other people and helping other people. And that really will stand you in good stead for the rest of your life, which is exactly what you're, you're saying here. Were you studying at the same time? time John you know did you did you have a plan yeah high school and and then I went to uh you know in, in the states I went to a community college um and then a, a four-year institution and then went on to get my master's degree when I moved to, to DC a couple of years after I moved to Washington um but you know I, I was a sociology major I studied studied sociology uh and my first job was in politics and you know and I've kind of found my way into HR I didn't grow up in HR, but I found my way into this profession and I really enjoy it because it's a culmination of a lot of the things that I've done over the course of my career. And sociology is the study of people and groups, right? I mean, that's what your the, the background is on, on sociology and how we interact with one another. And I have a master's degree in public administration with a concentration in management. So I think all of you know my educational background and all of the experiences that I've had, even from that nursing home job up to today all align and fit together. And so was it was it then John was it straight into the Senate because as you as you say those those skills stand you in good stead you know I often say it's it's important to learn the theory about the job but it's only when you actually walk through the doors and start interacting with people day to day that you really get to understand some of the challenges and opportunities that you have. So so was the Senate the first role for you? Yeah, first role out of college, I you know, it, I graduated in, in 91 and the economy was not great and and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my sociology degree. I was a, I was a soccer player. Colin and I have talked about that a lot. Um, and, you know, I, if I had my, you know, my choice, I think coming out of college, I, I would have been a teacher and coach soccer. Um, but I, I needed six credits to graduate. So I interned in a, in a Senate office in my hometown, uh, spent the summer, absolutely loved it, and was fortunate enough that they picked me up about six or nine months later. I joke about this. I wasn't going to get rich working in the government. And I was three days a week, $9,000 a year, uh, helping constituents with problems that they had with the federal government. So a constituent would call and say, hey, you know, my grandmother didn't get her social security disability check, or we're adopting a child from China. We need help with a passport. Or I lost my passport. I'm going overseas in two days. Can you help expedite it? So, you know, that to me, I, I really, as soon as I started answering the phones and helping constituents with these issues and problems, I knew that I had found what I wanted to do. And I was very lucky. I jumped at the opportunity, even though it was $9,000 a year, I jumped at the opportunity to, to work for United States Senator in my hometown. And then I parlayed that into a job um, in DC a couple of years later. And I think when you when you work those kind of roles, John, and, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, you know, learning empathy, compassion, understanding. This is where you, in those kind of roles, you really hone your listening skills because it's, you know, you, you can't really solve their problems if you don't have a firm grasp of what their key issues are, right? Yeah, and, and I'll tell you, I mean, Colin, I'll get personal here for a second. I'll try not, uh, you know, not to get too personal, but you and I have talked a little bit about this. I mean, you know, empathy and and listening and, and honing those skills 
you know, I think those are those are things that can be learned. I also think that those are things that are innate and there are things that are based on our own personal and life experiences. I had open heart surgery as a seven-year-old child, you know, and I was born with a congenital heart defect. And it was it was hard. There were certain things that were really hard uh, having those experiences as a young child. But as I look back and reflect on those experiences, it is amazing what I picked up and what I learned and the importance of valuing relationships and just being kind. Yeah, there's not enough of that, John. I, you know, it, 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 it's certainly for me and, and, and what I see. I think people talk a good game when it comes to kindness, but you know um, when you see it in action, you see the smile on people's faces, people pe- feel cared for. Trust is assumed, not earned, right, when, you, when you've got those kind of things. And I think you're right. I think that sometimes we forget where we've all come from in life, the things that we've gone through, open heart surgery as a, as a child, that provides a frame of reference, not only for for you and your personal life, but also with all of those interactions, right? It's that kind of just like me approach. They're a human just like me. They have issues just like me, you know? And I think if we can provide the reminder of, uh, of those kinds of things to staff, it, it does wonders to, uh, to encourage kindness, wouldn't you? Would you agree? Oh, yeah. We all, we all have things that, are, that, you know, that affect us. And the, the, you know, the value is what you do with it, right? The control versus influence. You cannot control for every situation, but you can certainly control how you react to situations. You know, again, like having really hard things, personal things. Wife is a breast cancer survivor. I'm a congenital heart defect. You know, I mean, there are things that I had to deal with. Those personal things I bring with me in my role in every job that I've had, because compassion as a leader is so important. And understanding that someone could be coming into the office and having a bad day, well, it might be something that happened to them on their way to work, or they might be dealing with something that you have no idea. And as a leader, you have to kind of hone in on that and say, all right, is this normal for this individual or is this something that's out of the ordinary? And if it's something that's normal for the individual and their behavior is not acceptable, you have to have that conversation with the employee. If it is something that's out of the ordinary and their behavior is like, wow, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Having a delicate conversation with somebody is really important. And I think you have to have compassion in both areas, right? If it's a regular occurrence, hey, you're not meeting the expectations. This is not what I expect from you. You know that this is not what the organization expects or where our customers expect. We really need to you know, make sure you're on that path. That's a difficult conversation that you need to have with compassion, maybe with some firmness. The other side of that is, hey, I realize and recognize you seem a little troubled by something today. Is everything okay? You have to be vulnerable as a leader to have those conversations. And, you know, I try to take my life experiences with me on my day-to-day job, uh, both here at the house, but everything that I've done up up to this point, and just be compassionate and be listening and empathetic and, and realize and recognize we have a job to do and we all need to, to pull in the same direction. And to do that, you've got to be able to communicate as a leader with compassion and empathy. That's such a fantastic share, John. And both empathy, compassion, what they demand, I suppose, if, if that's the right word, is that we actually make the time 
time to build relationships with people. Is this something that you've can been uh, have deliberately done throughout your career? Is you know whenever you started a different job that you would make time to interact with people, get to know them, so you were able to spot when they weren't perhaps being the best of themselves? Absolutely. And you know when I took this job, it's almost five years to the day. When I came in to do some of my paperwork, even before I started in this job, like I, I hadn't even I hadn't started yet, but I was you know I accepted and I just needed to take care of some paperwork. I had the opportunity to meet with the leadership team that I currently have, and I haven't made. There's been a couple of minor, like one or two changes, but nothing major. The very first thing I said to that to the team, and the very first words that I uttered to them is, "Me relationships matter, and without those relationships, we are never." going to be able to provide services to team members or to our customers. So for me, anything above and beyond uh, just how we manage those relationships is is critical, but we have to have foundation of strong leader or strong, strong relationships with those that we have to work with. Do you think, John, I mean, you're, you're highly active in the HR community within, within DC and the wider area there. Do you think that's something that, that, that's kind of been forgotten in organizations? I'm not, I, I don't want to point the finger at HR because I think everyone has a responsibility to make sure that, that we build relationships. Do you think sometimes there's this just do it ethic uh, rather than, you know, let's get to know each other, build a team and, and then collectively do it? Do you think we rush too much into productive work sometimes? I mean, that's a really good question. I I hope not. And I, I really do think, you know, if you, you know, pay attention to what's going on social media, you've got to kind of, you know, block some of that stuff out because I think there's a lot of inherent goodness in the world. And I still believe that it, the goodness of humanity, I mean, I think that there's a lot of kindness out there and I think people want kindness and people want compassion. And the one thing that I think that's been, you know, the global pandemic's been terrible on, on many, many levels, but I think it's also allowed us to take a step back and to realize and recognize that we have to be compassionate. And, you know, I want to block out the noise and I want to block out some of the, you know, things that you see on Twitter or on social media, because I, I don't believe that's indicative of the society as a whole. But, you know, Colin, you, you see it I mean, you you do a lot of engagement with with other companies and other organizations, and I I hope by you asking that question that it's not something that you've you've picked up on. But certainly, I guess I'll just say I hope not. <laughs> I love the fact that you see the good in everyone, John. And of course, I do too. Of course, I think in in I would say eighty percent of of cases, eighty percent of organizations that I work with, I think that they do see the good in people. I think that there are twenty percent that still have a have a hankering for for an older day that they remember when people just came in and got the job done. I mean, we're definitely seeing it now in the pandemic era and a move to more hybrid work. And I had a conversation with someone, John, a couple of weeks ago who said, "Are they working from home really?" are they and I was like listen if you want to believe the worst of people then that's what you're going to get yeah I was like if you believe the best of people and if you encourage the best then guess what that's what you'll get um and so you know I think I, I totally agree you know one of the things I stopped doing the pan doing during the pandemic was reading the news I would you know kind of read the key headlines but not the detail behind it because I believe that that people want to paint a picture some sometimes uh in order to keep us coming back for more of the same um but yes I believe in the goodness of people now just get back to your career because you, you kind of stepped out of public service life for a while there you, I think you went consulting what what was different in terms of what you did culturally within the consulting firm as opposed to actually within your team John was was there any difference no actually I what I'll what I'll say is the consulting firm um 
really elevated my awareness of culture. Um, I think that the the culture that we had in this small consulting firm that I worked in was amazing. Um, and and again, like every experience that I had up to that point was very beneficial. It was good for me to have all of my background from the government because the, the consulting firm that I was working with was primarily providing human capital consulting services to executive branch agencies here in the Washington, D.C. area. And we had some private sector clients and, and state and local clients, but primarily government clients. And we spent a lot of time on culture, on organizational fit on our recruiting and hiring activities. I am the 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 you know the the professional that I am today is because of the experiences that I had with that firm. And and it was good because you know it was a different mindset. I was a mission oriented employee for almost 20 years working in the government. The consulting company was very mission oriented, but we also had to it was a profit motive, right? I mean we we had to generate a profit, we had billable hours and we had to make sure that everybody was actively engaged and we spent a lot of time nurturing and growing and mentoring our team members. And I'm bringing a lot of what I learned in that firm to my current role as we're building career paths, competency models, updating position descriptions for over 700 employees. And, you know, those are the things that I learned in my previous job and then bringing it to this job in addition to everything else that I did prior to the consulting company. Those are those experiences, John, that really shape how we kind of think in our new roles. And, and you know, certainly in my in my own experience, I, very, I used to write this stuff down. I used to capture all of the good things that we did because I didn't want to lose it, but also recognize what I learned from the things that didn't go well and, and you know, to really help shape the future within my within my future teams. Now, you've been, I think you just said it's almost been five years since you've been with the, the CAO there. What's changed over that five years, John? What, you know, kind of in within your own thinking uh, and within the way that the, the office uh, operates? My, so to, to one thing, the, the relationships matter still is still front and center in my mind. The other thing that I talk to my team a lot about, and this was, this was advice that I received from, uh, I worked for two United States senators. The second one that I worked for used to give us this advice all the time. And he was a mayor of a big city. Uh, he was a, a governor and he was a two-term United States senator. And he used to tell us, do the doable. And to me, from a culture standpoint, you know, it, it aligns with exactly what I've been trying to do in, in this in this role, build programs, build engagement programs, build career development programs, build performance management programs, but do it in a way that is manageable. Because if you try to do everything at once, you are going to fail miserably. And you know, I think there you have to you have to be patient. You have to have a vision, and you have to execute a vision. I have a piece of paper that has the model that I drew out, uh, uh, first I drew it out in hand and, and the model that I wanted to develop for our team here from a human capital standpoint. And then I put it on a one slide PowerPoint presentation. It was one slide. I have now five years worth of volumes of material that align. I can align it back to one slide and say, where does this all fit? Because I literally, and it was a, it was a white piece of paper that was blank and I drew it out and I have terrible handwriting but it was a vision and we put that vision in place. And what we did is we said, this is what we need to do in the first six months. This is what we need to do in the next six months, two years, three years, four years. And we executed against it. 
by chunking it and doing the doable. I love doing the doable. I think too many organizations, John, they try and transform the organizations by doing huge programs without realizing that what defines life for people at work is the micro experiences. It's the little things day to day. It's the travel policy. It's the expense policy. It's who gets to go on that learning and development program. It's who gets to be on that offsite call or that, who you know, to kind of go out into the middle of nowhere. And those are the, the little things. And, and what you just talked about is a great, I guess, example of how to capture your own and thought leadership is a kind of hackneyed term but but what are those ideas that you've had you did exactly the same as, as the kind of things I would do is it's just write stuff down and then it would just build and grow and then what you do and I'm assuming you've done this John is you get other people involved in those ideas because what you want is the diversity of thought to challenge your own thinking and is this the way that you kind of keep yourself relevant is by putting your ideas out there with your team you know and, and then collectively challenge them to grow and evolve them yeah yeah, most definitely. I remember I was having dinner with a, a really good friend of mine um, who was a chief human capital officer in the executive branch, uh, maybe about two years after I started this job. And he is a mentor and, and still a very, very close friend. And I remember sitting down at dinner asking him, you know, how do you know if you're pushing the team too hard? And he said, well, you got to push them hard to find out what they're able to do. And then you got to be able to back off when you think they can't handle it. And I'll tell you, I've I'm proud of the way that, that my teams responded and, you know, they're definitely growing pains with any situation and, and learning through, you know, uh, both success and failure. But I, you know, I think from, from my standpoint, you know, if you're, if you're doing the doable and you have a vision and you're executing that vision and you know, you want to change the culture of an organization, you want to change the culture of an organization and you want to bring everybody along with you. And sometimes the best way to do that is just make steady progress and change the culture almost in a way that people don't even realize that the culture is changing until it has, right? And then it's like, holy cow, what a great place that where we work. And it's like, yes, it's absolutely a great place. It's always been a great place, but we've just put these programs in place to make it even better. And there you go. Instead of some like, oh, we're going to you know, here's our new slogan and everybody's got to embrace this slogan and here's this thing that we're going to do. And then all of a sudden, like six months later, there's this new slogan because the old slogan didn't work because nobody was committed to it because there was nothing behind. So from my standpoint, it's putting that plan in place, executing and just steady progress and realize that you might not get everything you wanted to achieve in that six month period, but if you got three quarters of what you want or half of what you wanted, you're still three quarters or halfway further than you were six months ago. So all good stuff. Yeah, so true, John. I, I said to someone recently, because I do kind of monthly sessions for, for organizations, help them evolve their culture. They'd done the slogan thing. And so like, as soon as you said that, I was like, oh my gosh, it came straight back to me. And I said to, I said to him, I was like, you've got to stop marketing your culture and start making it. Right. <laughs> right. You know, and I think I think people do a good job of marketing it, but actually when you scratch the surface, are people learning consistently new skills? And then sometimes it's not the case. Now I know one of the things that gets leveled often at government is that they kind of don't keep up with the times. And I know in the US you have things like select committees that look at functions like yours. So so just to talk a little bit about the CAO, because it's it's a, from from memory from our work together, it's about seven hundred people, isn't it? Yes, yeah, 700 people supporting, um, you know, the institution of the house. And, you know, we're basically like the C-suite function of the house. Um, we, we have an acquisitions team. We have a finance team. We have a, the IT 
per the backbone of the house, my HR team provides services primarily to the 700 CAO staff, but I also have a couple of offices that provide external facing services, the Wounded Warrior Fellowship Program, um, and we also have the Office of Employee Assistance and the Wellness Team that provides services not only to the CAO, but to the entire house community. So, you know, we, we help we help we help keep the the house running, and you know our our mission is to provide services so members can perform their constitutional duties. Yeah, that's which is no small task. That's right. <laughs> and so technology has been a big part of what you've been doing over the last two, three years, I think it's fair to say, John. So it, it, any insights you can provide into some of the work that you've been doing, I think people are, would love to hear. Yeah, just, you know, from, from a technological standpoint, and, and again, it's not just this job, it's every other job, you know, especially in the consulting field, you have to sit down and, and figure out, you know, what what are your requirements? Like, what are you trying to achieve? Are you Are you just, do you... You know, do you want to automate a process because that process is a mess? Well, if you don't fix the process and you automate it, you're just going to have an automated mess, <laughs> right? Really, what is it? Sit down. Again, I'll sit down with a blank sheet of paper and write out, okay, what do we want to achieve here? What's the objective? And then what are the requirements? And then bringing all the right people in to help you formulate those requirements. Because if I write HR requirements, I'm going to write them in HR speak, and it might not necessarily mean something for the IT team, or it might not mean something for the acquisitions team if we have to do you know, a major acquisition to purchase some, some software, to purchase some sort of technology, and it might not mean something to the finance team, right, if they're going to help us pay for this. So it's making sure that you're sitting down and writing the requirements, bringing in your stakeholders, and then deploying a strategy to make it, buy it, or whatever. If you're in, in private industry, sell it, right? And and figuring out how that works and, and writing those requirements is key and foundational to long-term success. And, you know, I, I think that's probably the best advice that I can give to anybody who's just starting out. And there's a lot of vulnerability. Sometimes you write, oh my gosh, is this even going to, is this what we need or is this what, what we don't need? If you don't put it on paper, you're never going to be able to know and you're never going to be able to either attract, you know, subtract or add to it. And, and writing those requirements down, John, is it provides the foundation for change management. I often think that people look at change management as the implement, implementation of a piece of technology and say, you know, once once we've implemented that, everything will change. When actually, when we talk about change, we're talking about behavioral change. We're talking about habit change. And if you involve those people right at the start of the process and get them thinking differently about the things that they'll need to grow and evolve in order to leverage a piece of technology you, you've kind of created the foundation for that change once the technology is good to go is that is that something that you've seen yeah absolutely and I, I think definitely you know involving the right people and the other the other thing to think about too you know for your for anyone listening to the podcast especially those organizations that are that are still, if there are out there, but maybe using manual processes for some of their some of their work. There's a lot of unknowns, right? If you're going to move from manual processing to automating, or even updating an automated process that may be a legacy system that you need to mothball, or it's you know lived past its prime. There's a lot of vulnerability as a leader because you don't want to fail. And there's also vulnerability in your team because your team may not feel like they have the capacity, the skills, the knowledge, um, or be updated on, on the advancement of technology. So as a leader, you want to recognize that, hey, you know, this is going to be hard um, and 
it's going to be a lot of work and we're going to have to make sure that we're all pulling in the same direction and Part of that is change management. Part of that is communication. Part of that is making sure you've got good requirements. And then you're having regular and recurring meetings, not for the sake of having meetings, but how are, how's everything going? Are we are we on track? Are we behind? If we're behind, why are we behind? Is it a performance issue? Is it a contracting issue? Is it a legacy issue? We can't you know shake something from the old system. And just making sure that you're managing everything you possibly can in an open and transparent way and realizing that things are going to happen that you can't control for. Fantastic. Now, I've got one question to ask you. I've got one I've got one thing I'd like you to share because what people don't know is when we were setting up this interview we had a little bit of an email exchange about where should we best do the interview should we do it from the office should we do it from from home and so we agreed that you would do it from home and then you popped up on the call and you were in the office I am so do you want to explain what you would because I think this is a great initiative that everybody should copy do you want to just explain a little bit about why you're in the office yeah so so uh, you know I mentioned the the wellness program is is um, is on my it's in my organization on my team and it's wellness month and we're doing a lot of activities to support wellness and today uh, we had a, a wounded warrior group come in and their mission is to help train Labrador retrievers and puppies to be service dogs and so today was pet a puppy day so they, uh, this organization brought puppies into the organ into the uh, institution and it was absolutely you know well received and just a nice benefit for um, the staff here to, to come in and just spend some time on the lunch hour uh, interacting with some adorable Labrador Retriever puppies. Everybody should have a pet a puppy day. They really should. I saw the pictures as well. They, they, they look absolutely gorgeous. John, I want to. I know you're you're a very busy man. I want to say a huge thank you uh, for spending time talking to us today on the Culture Makers podcast, mate. It's been it's been fabulous. Thank you so much. Colin, it is my pleasure. I always enjoy our conversation. It's my honor to do this. So thank you very much for the invitation. Thanks so much for listening to the Culture Makers podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to get notified when new episodes are released. If you've been inspired by today's guest, please share the link with your friends, family or networks. If you'd like to continue your learning journey, then why not join our virtual community of Culture Makers where our members share ideas to help them get a little bit better every day. You can find out more at www.culturemakers.community.